Luke 7 from verse 18 to 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Mm. Awesome. Thanks, Jen. Um, so we're going to look at a subject this morning of doubting Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever doubted Jesus or doubting God. Um, some of you have, and, and uh, you're okay to admit that. I, I feel like I've heard a lot of Christians have doubts about Jesus, but I feel like almost all of them, the doubts uh, are kind of like this, this like nervousness of, of if you tell someone that you have doubts about God or doubts about Jesus, it's like this, this kind of hidden secret, like I know I shouldn't but this is what I'm thinking, and it's so bad, and there's this kind of like shame or guilt attached to doubt. So do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Do you, do you agree? Have you kind of seen that? Um, so I know I shouldn't, but I do, and these kind of um, doubts about Jesus, we, we regard as a really serious matter, um, and it is a serious matter, because in our minds, it's like, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, that changes everything. So, you know, there's like books like Jesus Changes Everything, um, and this idea of Jesus changes everything. But if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then that changes everything. Every reason we have for hope, where we understand we get a, gain purpose and meaning from, is gone. Uh, we have no basis for our worldview. So the way we view everything in life changes if what we believe about Jesus isn't, isn't true or right. So these doubts do have kind of a, a heaviness to them, a weightiness to them. Um, and so one, we feel like shame and guilt. We shouldn't doubt because God is God or Jesus is Jesus. Who are we? And on the other side, it's like, but if we're right or if our doubts prove to be true in any way, then our whole world falls apart. And so it's, it's quite a kind of a serious space to be. But um, this morning I want to talk about, or maybe some encouragement that we get, is that John the Baptist has doubts about Jesus. So <laughs> I think that's encouraging to me. That if John the Baptist can have doubts about Jesus, and John's like prophesied from the Old Testament, and you and I aren't prophesied, not really, we are generally prophesied about the, the people that Jesus is going to save, but we're not specifically mentioned. John is specifically spoken about, and yet this kind of, uh, this gift from God, uh, John the Baptist, has doubts about who Jesus is. And so if that can happen to him, it can happen to all of us. Um, and so it's okay. The three things I want to look at is why do doubts exist? What should we do with these doubts, and where does this journey end? So why do doubts exist? And um, if that's you, hopefully this morning we can clarify some of that. Uh, uh, what do you do with these doubts? And hopefully you can get some encouragement there. And then where, do these, where does this journey end? Why do doubts exist? Well, if you can imagine with me a prison cell, I don't, I don't think many of you have been to jail. I think some of you have. Uh, if you imagine a cell, probably not like Western Australian prison cells, but imagine something a little bit more old day, small cell, packed with people that haven't showered in weeks. Um, 
then maybe in one corner is used as the, the toilet, and so there's feces and urine piling up in a corner, and the, and the urine's kind of spreading through the cell um, and, and touching some people because there's not enough room. And maybe along the other side of the cell is like a rat run, um, and the rats have kind of learned that if they can't find crumbs, they can try to have, have a go at flesh. You, so it's hard to fall asleep. So it's, it's stinky, it's gross, it's, it's dirty. Um, you get the idea. And then imagine that this prison is full of people who are the worst criminals, and they're there for good reasons. As everyone tells their story, it's like murderers and rapists and uh, people who've stolen or caused damage or whatever. And then there's you, and it gets to you, and why are you here? And you go, oh, it's telling people about Jesus. And you're sitting there, and, and something of the injustice of that hits home. All these people have been wrong. All these people have injured other people's lives. All these people have affected others adversely. All I've done is try to tell people about Jesus. I've just tried to make people's lives better. I've just shared good news. And here I am, and something of the injustice kind of comes home to you. Um, this is John's predicament. This is, this is John's life. This is his situation at the moment. He's stuck in this prison. Um, John had a certain message that he preached about God's Messiah and the wrath of God against those who wouldn't repent. And John's message went like this. This is something he said. Listen, listen to how John says it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is laid at the roots of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. <laughs> this guy wasn't trying to make friends. Um, this, this is how he preaches to important people. You brood of vipers. You know, like, what do you do with a snake? Cut its head off. You know, you, d- you deserve just to be cut and thrown into a fire. You're dangerous, wicked people. Um, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The axe is, what, what does that mean? It means, you know, you don't have much time left. You're going to get cut down. And you're going to, you know, God's going to judge you. You're going to fall over. Now, th- this is sometimes used... Um, Maybe in churches, I mean, you have to, when you get there, Matthew 3, you have to preach about it. What, what does it say? But he's really talking to religious people who don't need God, who don't need Jesus, who kind of have made God to be what they want him to be. Um, and he gets himself in trouble. But this is how he's preaching. This is what he's believing. He believes that the wrath of God is imminent. It's coming. It's on its way. The Messiah is going to bring it. Uh, and so when he sees Jesus, he's like, you know, here comes, uh, here he is. And, and go to him, he's also believing that Jesus is going to come. Jesus is the guy who's going to take the axe and, and wield it. That's what he's expecting. Um, but he gets confused because God's wrath bringer, he hears while he's in prison, is bringing grace and mercy wherever he goes. So the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus because he seems to eat with sinners. And, you, you know, and, then, the, and then John's got a problem with Jesus because he's not... Um, bringing wrath, he's bringing grace and mercy. And he just hears stories over and over about how this, the Messiah who's bringing the wrath of God is just so gracious and merciful and people love to be near him and he's drawing huge crowds and he's more of a gatherer than a scatterer. He's like, this is not what I was expecting. And he's sitting like, is this worth it? I'm in jail because of this guy that runs around being liked by everyone? 
This guy who like sits with children and blesses them? He's got time in his day for that? This guy who's healing people? You know, it's like, what? It's just not what John imagined. So why do we have doubts? In John's case, uh, John's confused because his expectation hasn't been met of who Jesus is. Um, There wasn't anything wrong with John's theology. John had a great theology. His theology was just incomplete. It was deficient. It wasn't wrong. It was just lacking. And so he didn't know, what John didn't know is that, one, grace and mercy was going to come before judgment, and that Christ was going to return again. That wasn't thing, John just thought Christ is coming one time, and he's bringing the judgment of God, and uh, he didn't understand that Christ is coming the first time to bring grace and mercy and the good news of the gospel, and then was going to come again to bring the wrath of God. And so this is something John doesn't know and doesn't understand, um, and it's just deficient in his theology. So his theological deficiency led to an expectation that Jesus didn't meet, and from his circumstances, doubts arose about Jesus. Um, so it's, it's missed expectations for, for John and confusion that's caused, um, these doubts about Jesus. So the way this might work, or we might encounter this practically <coughs> in our lives, might be uh, that we see suffering in the world, and it causes us confusion. If God's such a God of love, how come He allows for this kind of suffering? If God has all power, uh, how come He lets uh, those evil people in power uh, do their worst in millions of people's lives? Um, how can a God of love and power do this? And um, our theological, it doesn't mean we have poor theology, because we know that God's a God of love. We know that God's a God of power. So there's good theology there. But the deficiency of what God is doing, we don't understand entirely what God is like and why He's doing what He's doing within a timeline of human history that causes us confusion. And then we get stuck, and and I I don't know if it's anyone in this room, but certainly I'm sure you have, and I have spoken with people who they really struggle with God because of the pain they see in the world. And it's a deficiency of understanding what God is doing. And so we use our human understanding to really say, if I was God... I wouldn't do it that way. Therefore, God must be doing something wrong or God doesn't exist. Uh, because we're stuck in our own understanding. What about uh, adverse, our own adverse circumstances may lead us to wonder how involved God is in our lives. You know, so we go through something and we're all happy while everything's uh, going well. And then something happens in our lives that goes badly. And we reach out to God. And God doesn't answer. And we think, we start to think, I've been to church like every week for the last, what is it, like 41 years. Well, not 41 yet, but almost. (laughs) Pray all the time. Read the Bible. Try to put others, Jesus above all, and others before myself. And listen to blah, blah. And you you know, you kind of just go through the, the things. You start to like count up your works. And you go, and... And the one time I ask God to be there for me, He's not doing anything. Where is He? Does He really want to be involved in my life? Does He really care? And this kind of confusion arises from a difficulty. There's good theology, knowing that God wants to be involved in our lives, but there's a deficiency in our theology, not knowing how God can use adverse circumstances in our lives 
And so stuck there, that's kind of this deficiency, we're confused and our expectations aren't met and we doubt God. Is God really involved in my life? What about when God seems silent? It's funny how we always... No, sorry. It's funny how often we put the things... We struggle with God on, on ourselves. What I mean by that is like... So God is, God is silent. We're going through something and we earnestly... I, I don't know how, how many of you fast and pray. You know, in January we'll probably do uh, habits again, summer camp, and maybe one of them we'll do is fasting or, or something else. But I don't know how we did this January. I don't know how many of you have fasted. I've enjoyed keeping a regular habit of fasting, but keeping regular habits also plays into Pharisaic. So you think you have credit with God every now and then. Even though you know you don't, you think you do. Um, and so it's like, God, how come you're not answering my prayers? I'm just, I'm just asking for a yes or a no. It's not, I'm not asking for much. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not asking for writing in the sky. I don't even mind if you use the person I like least to come across to me and give me a prophetic word and say, hey, I just feel like God is giving you a green light. That's okay. I'll take it from anyone. But I've been fasting. I've been praying. Where are you? All we want to do is serve you. All we want to do is do the right thing by you. Well, please, God, just say yes or no, or whatever it might be. And he seems silent. You stop and you pause and you listen. Crickets. <laughs> then you start going to the prophetic people you know and go, hey. So I, was, um, I just wanted to know if you want to have coffee sometime. Let's, let's catch up. And then you just wait with silent pauses. How are you going? I don't know. You tell me how I'm going. <laughs> what do you feel God's saying? Or if we get really bold, we might go to someone and say, hey, I feel like God has a word from you for me. <laughs> and this has happened. I've heard, I've heard people do it. And we're, we, th- this is us. We're desperate for God to come through. And that silence causes doubts. God, are you really, are you really speaking in my life? Are you really in control over my life? And the deficiency of theology of how God speaks into our lives and in his sovereignty causes, and the mis-expectations, God's not meeting my expectations, he's not speaking, he's not giving the direction I want to need in the way that I've asked him to do it. And then we think of Gideon, and then we think that's even unfair. You did it for him. I'm not even asking for a wet fleece or a dry fleece. I don't even think I'll ask you twice like he did. You did it for him, why won't you do it for me? And so in the silence, doubts rise. So our circumstances mixed with deficiencies <coughs> in our theology, um, what God is like and, and how God works, leads to wrong expectations about what God is like and how He works and creates space for faith and doubts to exist in our lives. In a way, in this way, faith and doubts are good because it means that you've been, you've been hanging on to God for something and your missed expectations aren't that bad it just proves that you've, held, you've hung on to Him for something, right? You've cried out for something. I think in some ways we, you have to avoid two extremes, which is one way where you start to go, God has told me, or God has said, and you start to claim it because you really need that because of your theology. Your theology means you can't, you're paralyzed unless you have a God word, so you, you, you pseudo make one up. And, and we've heard this before, and it's, it's a hard, you know, you've heard this before. It's hard, what do you speak, when someone goes, oh, God's told me to marry so-and-so, or God's told me to move to there and there, or God's told me to take this job, what do you say? 
Are you going to be the person that speaks against God? But what are the chances that God has done that? Very small. That God has spoken that clearly. Or that demandingly. Or that uh, He can and He may. But, oh, it's dangerous language. Or we go this side where we don't ask God for anything. And we just kind of go, you know, God is sovereign. He's okay for me to, like, we must, do, we must exercise our own will on His behalf. Like, we must choose Him with our own will. And He's sovereign, so He's in control. And so He expects me to, be, like, put on my big boy pants and make a decision. In other words, really, functionally, I'm God in my life. And both extremes are dangerous. There's kind of this vulnerability in the middle of like, I don't know what God's on. He's not being really clear, but I'm clinging to Him. I'm holding on to Him. I'm hoping He'll speak into my life and bring direction. But if He doesn't, I know I've got to put on some big boy pants and make a decision. But it's a vulnerable space. Anyway, the point is that doubts are good because it probably suggests you're in that vulnerable space. Um... So God is not what we expect. I just want to say that again, because <laughs> it may come as a surprise to us. God is not what we expect. There's no one in this room that has a full understanding of God. And everyone in this room, in some way, your understanding of God is wrong. In, in myself included, maybe even more than everyone in this room. God is not what we expect. God is not shaped by a Western religion. God's not shaped by Eastern religion. God's not shaped by culture. God's not shaped by knowledge. God's not shaped by understanding. God is not who we expect. He's some of what we expect, but we don't understand Him fully. He doesn't do what we want. He doesn't answer our questions. Always, in the way that we want. <coughs> he refuses to fit into our box. And He refuses to do what makes us comfortable or happy. Uh, to boil it down to a simple point that's just memorable, is God disappoints us. Disappointment the one of the harshest punishments you can give someone. If you're not a parent, I'll give you a parenting tip when you, for when you become a parent. Much harsher than the rod is disappointment when your kid's old enough. Not when they're like little kid at the back that's still with sitting on mom's laps and being nursing. Not, not, that, not that age group. Um, the older age group when they're sitting on the front listening to your sermon. You know, Zeke, this almost, ha- I, I'll dramatize what happened the other day. But, but is it, you know, it's too late to ask, I've already started. <laughs> But said something like, something happened. And it's like, uh, and, and I was like, well, I can't, really, like, I can't really discipline you for that, but it, it, it's a bit disappointing. And he's like, oh no. And it's like, if I, could, if I could put words and actions into his face, it would have been like, I'll, I'll go get the wooden spoon, Dad, please. Please just, please just smack my bum with the wooden spoon. Please, Dad, I'll do it myself. Yeah, yeah, we go. Just don't be disappointed. Um, it's harsh. Disappointing is one of the harshest things you can do. If you're, if you're a married couple, you know, one of the harshest... Oh, I forgive you. No, it's not, it's not a big deal. Don't worry, I, I do forgive you. It's, it's a bit disappointing. 
don't forgive me. Don't forgive me. Hold it against me forever, but do not be disappointed in me. Disappointment's huge. Huge. Because there's missed expectations. You're not what I thought you were. Uh, You're not doing what I thought you could do. You're not there for me when I thought you could be there for me. So I can forgive you, but I'm disappointed. My expectations have been not met. And God disappoints us. God does not meet our expectations. And God's okay with that. Sorry, I feel, I feel like I don't, have the, I don't have permission to speak for God. I'm not his spokesman on the stage telling you, like, hey, message from God. He doesn't mind disappointing you. Um, I'm just, theologically, go look it up for yourself, see what you think. It doesn't seem to me that God minds disappointing us. I don't think he gets joy out of it. But it's like a father who knows that he's good and gentle and kind and wise and right that doesn't bend his will so the kids aren't disappointed, but graciously holds to his will because he knows it's the best. He knows that what he's doing is way bigger than their small brains can comprehend. And he holds to it, not because he's evil or wicked or wrong, but because he's loving and kind and right. And so we get disappointed by God. And so, uh, where do doubts come from? Our doubts arise from our disappointment, from being disillusioned. You know, this is like, you know, a kid might say to a parent, or because they didn't get, they didn't get that new phone, or they didn't get that new thing. But do you love me? Like, if you love me, why won't you let me have that stuff? Like, do you love me? You don't love me. Because I love you. Right? And so our doubts do rise from disappointment. I'm not saying that's the only place, but I think largely that certainly was happening with John. From his disappointments and confusion, he didn't know if Jesus was who Jesus said he was or who he thought he was. So what, what should we do with these doubts? We should do what John does. John gets two of his disciples to come visit him in jail, and he sends them to Jesus with his doubts and, and says, look, I, I, I don't know. Are you the sky? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Do that. You know, instead of sitting in his jail cell feeling sorry for himself, he goes straight to Jesus through the only means he can, his own disciples, and says, I want you to go ask him if, he, if he's the one. Every one of our doubts we can put into a question and take it to Jesus in some way. Um, I was in a team of pastors in America. Before we came to this church, uh, I was a pastor in a church um, and there were, there, were, there were about eight of us, and I had this um, haunting thought that kept coming, uh, which I put off for a, a few months, which was, do, do, do I really believe God is real? <laughs> it's like a bit of a bad thing to think about when you're a pastor in a church. Uh, and it's like, uh, and I put it off, and, it's like, and I used to pray and go like, God, I don't want that thought. I don't believe that thought. Like, where's this thought coming from? This is a horrible thought. And then my best friend and I started talking, and, and he was having doubts, and I was like, well, I, am, I am too. I don't know what to do with him. But now that it was out, I'd said it. Uh, I, I knew I had to do something with it. Fundamentally, my, my, my kind of application was, if, if I find that I don't actually believe what I say about, I believe about God, then I don't actually believe the church should even then exist, and then I don't actually believe I should be employed in the position I have, I'm, my life needs a new direction. 
it was, that's how kind of applicable it was. Like, I can't keep being a pastor in a church that I don't think should even exist. That's, that's just wrong and, and kind of wicked. So I went to the leader of the team and said, hey man, um, here's, and, and I thought I was also resigning by saying that, um, here's the doubts I'm having. And I anticipated his response would be, uh, well, you can't be a pastor in this church while you don't know if God exists in the way that you've believed or not. So, you know, um, I accept your resignation. And, and that, I thought that would be very fair and right. And instead he said, this is wonderful. <laughs> I was like, What? <laughs> Let me tell you what I just said, and because um, maybe you've misunderstood. Uh, this is wonderful. God's doing something. Go on the journey. Like, uh, okay, so I'm not fired. I should still come into work. I'm, I'm still leading the worship team. I'm still involved with the youth. I'm still going to be preaching. Okay, all right. Uh, you know better than I do, I guess. Um, I spend most of the next two years just reading the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the Bible, reading the Bible. Talking, praying, reading the Bible. And one day I got to Acts. And and there was a day, kind of just, it broke. And I got to Acts, and it wasn't a verse. It wasn't a specific theological point that Luke's making in Acts. It just all came home, like in a moment. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I believe in this world. But it was like this reverse engineering moment. The only thing I know that exists in this world is the church. That's the only thing I know God is doing. And, and the way that I, I mean, that, because that's where my application point was, like around about could I do my job or not, that's where God landed it for me. And that reverse engineered all the way back to, therefore, I believe the only thing I believe does exist is God. Um, I don't know about everything else. I don't know what else I think about the world, the West, the East, the ups, the downs. The, I don't know. I'll have to rethink that. But I know God exists and He's building His church. That's all I know. Um, and doubts were gone. <sighs> doubts turned into uh, incredible faith. And the way I've tried to describe it to my kids as they've grown up is that if you've grown up in a Christian home, it's like you, you, get, you land... Uh, on this island of faith, which is your parents, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and God is covenantal, so it's right, and it's great, but at some point, you're going to have to go over a bridge to, and get, find your own faith, and that walk along the bridge is quite scary, and you don't have to decide to do it. You don't, you don't decide for yourself to do it. You don't decide tomorrow, okay, tomorrow I'm going to doubt if there's God, and then uh, work, work it all out, but at some point, God will gently take you on a journey to land your own faith um, and then go with it. Don't, let's talk about it. Bring it up because it's exciting and it's wonderful and it's good. Um, but I was grateful for that, what I went through so, so that now as a pastor, when people come and share doubts, they, they see from me, usually, nine times out of ten, that's great. It's wonderful. God's doing something Go on the journey. Sometimes there's just a rebuke. Who do you think you are? But that's not the norm. Most people are very sincere in their faith and therefore God is doing something in it. Um, That can be quite exciting. Um, So since then, personally, 
you know, there's been some doubts about, because my, my head, NAS got a scooter recently, and we had to go get helmets to ride the scooter, and I found out my head's quite small, um, or it's quite narrow, which is disappointing, because it means that the brain fits into a very small space, um, which means the brain's a very small space. <laughs> but uh, what I have found is that God doesn't fit inside the space between my ears, which is uh, small. And some of you have a much bigger space than I have between my ears, but it's still very small if you compare it to the universe. Um, we're talking about millimeters, not uh, a lot more than that. So we don't totally understand all of God, uh, all the universe. We're still learning so much. Um, but some of the doubts arose from not being able to understand what God is like. So, so it reaching kind of an... It, it, I can't... doesn't make sense. If you, if you want to kind of understand what I'm talking about, think about um, eternity for a bit until your brain feels like it wants to just... Uh, you just want to shake it out of your head. They're like forever and ever and ever and ever, never ends. And, you're like, and you just want to stop thinking because your, your brain can't handle it. Um, and it can't. That's the truth. It can't handle the information because it can't get to an end point. It can't get to an end of understanding. And then the guy named Michael... And, that, and so some doubts, God, what, what is the, this? And then Michael Eaton very wisely said, um, every doctrine... Every belief about God has to end in mystery. And I was like, oh. And his point was this. If it doesn't end in mystery, then we could invent him. Everything we can invent, we can understand, we can explain. Even the mystery is created by us. But if it's bigger than us, something that's been taught to us, but yet we don't fully understand the, the breadth of it, Man cannot do that himself. He can't invent something greater than him that's beyond his understanding. Every doctrine of God has to end in mystery. If it doesn't, it's man-made. And my heart, I remember the feeling, just chest just exploded with faith. The very things I was doubting were the very things that became most exciting and wonderful. Oh God, I don't get this about you. That proves you are you. And something, you know, me trying to control God turned into, thank you, God, that I cannot control you. <sighs> God willing to disappoint me led me to a firm faith, a life-giving faith. And so, you know, if we have doubts, great. Go on the journey, but pray. Read your Bible find wise Christians to work, walk with. If John sat silently in prison, he would have died not sure who Jesus was because he was soon after this, he was beheaded. And he would have been beheaded not really sure about who Jesus was. But he wasn't silent. He went on the journey. If I sat silently in my doubts, I would either be doing something differently with my life today. I don't think I'd be living in Australia, and I certainly wouldn't be a pastor. Um, or I would be a pastor, but only doing it for a wage, which, I mean, that just sounds so evil. But there'd be no faith. What if we sit silently in our doubts? What if you sit silently in your doubts? What life will you be missing out on? 
John, John ended in faith, greater faith than he began with. When he was beheaded, I, I can't say this for him, and I can't say this for history, but he would have been one of the happiest beheaded people in the history of humanity because he had recently, his faith had been affirmed that Jesus is everything he had hoped Jesus would be. And he knew exactly where he was going. The life I've enjoyed of walking with God in the absence of doubts and the firmness of faith is so comforting and rest-giving and stress-relieving that you can sink into the mystery of God. Rest in that. Put up your hands with certain things and go, I don't know. don't know. Oh, the life. What is the life that you might be missing by sitting silently with doubts rather than going on a journey? So we must let our doubts um, be a trigger that sends us to Jesus in prayer and Bible reading and uh, wisdom. Where do these doubts go? Where does this journey end? Jesus responds to John's doubts by fulfilling scriptures. Um, It seems like the easiest thing in the world to do would have been, you know, two disciples come and say, are you the one, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus goes, yes, I am, go tell John. But he doesn't do that. He goes, uh, just watch and watch this. And then he just goes and he does, he fulfills scriptures. Well, just, just see what I do here. And then he fulfills Isaiah 35 verse 5. And he fulfills Isaiah 61 verse 1. And Jesus then says, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus, this is show and tell. I'll show you, and I'll go tell him this. And he, go, and he quotes Isaiah 35 verse 5, and John would have known that. He would have, that's exactly what he would have expected from, Jesus, from the Messiah. And he goes back and he says, this is what we've seen. And John's heart, you can imagine in prison going, ah. Oh. I'm not understanding why there's not more judgment, but this is the one. This is him. There's much more grace and mercy than I anticipated, but but he's the one. As I um, (coughs) say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Um, These are things that John believed and was waiting for. Jesus is saying to John, John, it's like a secret code. He's saying, John, it's me. It's not happening the way you expected, but it's me. I think sometimes God answers us in ways that uh, we don't expect. The message of John um, and all of us from Jesus is, I'm doing everything I promised in the scriptures to do. I'm doing it all. I'm doing everything I've said throughout scriptures from time, from before time to, the, the, to time eternity. You're, you're in the middle of a historical era right now, but beyond that in eternity and, and before that, I've spoken of what I'm going to do and I am doing all of that. It's just not always the way that you expect it. 
I'm fulfilling God's word, I'm saving God's people, and I'm judging the world. I'm just doing it my way. You may get disappointed along the way. Everything you could hope for and dream, but I'm not going to be the way that you hoped and dreamt. And so there's this like, Jesus is everything and we're satisfied in him and yet he's not always what we want him to be. And he doesn't always do things the way that we want him to do it. And yet he's everything that we hoped him to be, for him to be, ultimately. Um, then Jesus shows off his gentleness and his kindness and his graciousness. He says, he says this message, <coughs> which is not in um, Isaiah. He kind of adds this thing. Till John, blessed is the one who is not uh, offended by me. Uh, there's, this, there's this thought that this is kind of the, an added beatitude, an added blessing from God. Um, the ninth one. Blessed are, are the people. Blessed are you, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus gives a sermon, but this is a separate. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. In other words, Jesus accepts that there's going to be people that, are, that we're going to be disappointed by him, that we're not going to know what to do with him, that he's not always going to meet our expectations. And he says, well, blessed are those who don't get offended by me. An insecure leader, I think, would threaten people. An insecure leader, I think, would say, don't you dare be offended by me. Do you know who I am? Insecurely. Let me remind you who I am. Let me remind you of my position before the Father. Don't dare be offended by me. He doesn't do that, so he's not insecure. A tyrant would say, I don't care if you're offended by me. Get lost. Well, he doesn't say that, so he's, he's not a tyrant. He obviously cares. He's blessed are those who are not offended by me. I don't want you to be offended by me. I understand, he's saying, he's saying, I understand. I understand you get confused. I understand sometimes you get disappointed. I understand I don't always meet your expectations the way you thought. I understand your circumstances cause confusion in your life. I understand that. But don't give up. Don't let go. Keep holding on. Keep trusting. Keep your eyes on me. Blessed are those who don't get offended. Blessed are those who don't fall away because of me. Who don't give up. Who don't box me in. Blessed are those who hang on to me. Well, each one of us have been tempted to let go. Each one of us have been tempted to say, this is too hard, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Each one of us knows people who's further away from God today than they were a year ago. It's heartbreaking. And, and they, they've, you know, God hasn't come through, or I got hurt by the church, or there's, there's many reasons. But ultimately, they, they're giving up on Jesus because he's disappointed and the church wasn't what they thought it was going to be. His people weren't what they thought it was going to be. The leaders weren't as good as they thought it was going to be. I mean, these are Jesus' things that he's building. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And ultimately, they end up further away. Not just the church. It could just be people distracted by better, not better things, sorry. Take that back. Heresy. Stone him. <laughs> by things they think are better than Jesus. 
You know, I, I used to need Jesus. They won't say that. I used to need Jesus, but now I have a spouse. Now I have children. Now I have a better job. Now I have a hobby. No one will say that, but that's what their life shows. Jesus said, that's not, that's not blessed. I get it. I understand. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Through the, through the missed expectations, hold on. Through the doubts, come to me. Come doubt with me. So Jesus is saying to us that he's going to ultimately be the number one reason people lose their faith. <laughs> I've heard it said the number one reason why people turn their, the number one, what was it, Brennan Manning, the number one reason for atheism in this world is Christians. By the way, they profess Christ with their mouth and deny him by their lifestyle. That's true for atheists. For Christians, the number one reason uh, for people turning away is Jesus because he's not, he doesn't give them the life that they thought they were going to get. He isn't going to do what we want him to, be, to do, or he isn't going to be what we want him to be. He's going to demand our whole life. He's going to shepherd our whole life, and he's going to raise us to eternal life. And he's going to do everything that he promised to do. But in this life, a relationship with him, we'll, we will sometimes be tempted to have doubts about him, or be confused about him, or be offended by him. If you, I really want to, I'm, I'm trying to bring it home, but I, I really do want to show you that this is all of us. Because I don't think we, we look in the mirror and go, Jesus is offending me. But when, let's say we're in a community context and, and there's not a lot of strife experienced at King's Cross, but every now and then over the 10 years, there's been someone's offended by someone. Not a lot, but, but now and then. When we can't deal with that in a way that Scripture has given us to deal with it, go to a brother, you know, or seek, uh, go, seek forgiveness, repent, reconcile. When we can't deal with it in a Christian way and when we lose relationship what we're saying, what, what the offense that's coming from is Jesus. Because Jesus has saved that person. Jesus has brought you into community. Jesus is building it. Jesus is the head of the church. It's his messed up bride. And the offense that you're getting is, is ultimately from what he's doing. Or what he's allowing to happen. So when we can't reconcile, when we can't work it out, we're ultimately saying what Jesus is allowing, I can't put up with. I'm not walking with that. Jesus is offending me. And that's why Scripture gives us how to walk out forgiveness, because we're going to need forgiveness. How to walk out grace, because we're going to need grace. How to give each other mercy, because we're going to need to give each other mercy. And when we don't, we ultimately, the one who's offending us is Jesus. That's what sin is. The one you're ultimately rejecting is God. Blessed are those who are not offended by me, who can turn back to their brother or sister forgiveness, who can reconcile broken relationships, who can give each other grace and mercy. Do you know what the word blessed means in part? And I'll draw to towards a close. Blessed means favorable circumstances. Blessed. One of the meanings is a favorable, favorable circumstances. So go send this message to John, who's in a jail cell with a uh, a rat run and a, a toilet inside 
and go tell them that there are favorable circumstances for those who are not offended by me. <laughs> yeah, right. Unless he's right. So Jesus sends this message back to John. John, I know your, I know your circumstances are a surprise to you. But don't, hold on to me. Trust me. Don't be offended by me. And when it's all said and done, you're going to be blessed. You're going to end up in favorable circumstances. Not in this life, John, because your head's coming off. But in the life I give you and the life I raise you to, you're going to be in favorable circumstances. Trust me, John. I'll get you there. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So, you can live in your prison. Maybe your prison is sickness or dead-end job or lack of opportunities or singleness or marriage. And you can live feeling let down, discouraged, abandoned. Ultimately, all of these are different words for offended. Or you can live in protest. You can protest the state of your life, what you see in the world, why you aren't getting enough of what you think you need, or, or um, why you're getting too much of struggles you don't need. You can protest where God is letting you down, where God needs to be show, showing up more. You can throw a tantrum. Or you can get stuck in passivity. In passivity, you don't give too much. You don't give too little. Um, you don't commit too much. You don't commit too, too little. You keep one step, one foot in, but one foot out. You hedge your bets. You've kind of got your own life and your spiritual life. You've got your outside the church and your church. You've got your, I'll give God this, but I'm going to control that. And uh, this, in this way, you can make sure, you can make really sure that you, you, you feel safe emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially. Because you're just, you're just making sure you're not giving too much to be vulnerable. God, God can't hurt you if you're not all in. In fact, if, if God proves to be wrong, then it's okay. You didn't really lose out. You know, I've heard people, <coughs> and I'm sure you have as well, like, if it, you know, someone might say, if at the end of the day we find out God is just a made-up lie, philosophically, he's just not, he doesn't even exist, well, then at least I lived a good life. Rubbish. There's an argument about whether you lived a good life or not. By whose definition? If there's no God, then who defines morality? Who defines a good life? What are you talking about? We hedge our bets. Or, or, last one, or we can take our doubts to Jesus in prayer, in opening up the Word, in wise counsel. And we can let Him work upon our minds and our hearts in community. We can allow His Holy Spirit to form a real faith in us. We can let Him turn our doubts into a substantial faith. We can let him show us who he is in his own way, in his own time. We can let him encourage us in the way that he chooses through his word because he is the wise counselor, the creator, 
the surgeon of the heart. You know, my, my one journey took two years. It wasn't overnight. Tormented, haunted, haunted by thoughts I didn't want about God. And a moment changed all of that. You know, that was God's way. Why tears? I don't know. Why didn't you just do it the first time I pray? I don't know. I'm not God. That's what he decided. That's what he knew I needed. But his Holy Spirit worked on it. Maybe I needed two years so that my friend could journey as well. Maybe he needed me to journey with my friend. Maybe he needed me to struggle so I'd have empathy for others who struggle. I, I don't know. I can try find reasons because all I'm trying to do is soothe my own mind with a reason. God hasn't given me one. Maybe there isn't one. It's just what God wanted. What's your journey like? There's no guarantee that we're going to like Jesus' answers, but Jesus' answers are always solid and they're always life-giving and they're always right. And so to take us into that vulnerable place, that's the option I'm, I'm hoping you'll lean into is not in, stuck in, in prison, just looking at your circumstances, not throwing a tantrum and not being passive, but leaning in and saying, Jesus, I don't understand. Can you teach my heart and my mind? Can you give me wise counsel? Can you speak to me through your word? Can your Holy Spirit shape my thoughts and my, my affections so that, that I, can, I can, you can, can you turn this into faith? And then we see what God do, what God does, the miracle in our hearts. Maybe in a moment, maybe in a decade, we might not like his answer, but it will always be good and always be life-giving and it will always lead us back to him. That's where, where do our doubts end? Our doubts end in better circumstances. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let me pray.